In the abstract world of international folklore, there is an animal that has been taken to be the incarnation of charm, cunning, slyness, and even wickedness. It is generally painted as possessing an ingenious mind and is regarded as a beast to be both admired and feared. Similarly, the early decades of the 20th century saw Chicago gangsters so clever that a U.S. Treasury official once considered him the smartest and the best of all hoodlums, a man that the Chicago Crime Commission regarded as an organizational genius, widely respected among the most powerful bosses in New York City, a man that crime journalist Herbert Asbury described as unsurpassed in the annals of American crime and the nearest thing to a true crime mastermind that the United States had yet to produce. A man who saw a more peaceful future for organized crime and was willing to commit murder to achieve it. This is the legend of Johnny the Fox Torrio. I wouldn't know a gunman if I saw one. Gangster Harris Time views of public enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police. How did this famous gangster treat you? He treated me wonderful. This is what I'm telling you, what I'm exposing. This is my doom, 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 doom. Have you seen The Town, Bill, or any of you? No. I have. It's a great movie. Yeah, well, do you remember the end? They have a floral shop, too. And that, yeah, so that's, I don't know why, but that reminds me of... Did you just think of a movie that happened to have a flower shop? Well, they they end up blowing those guys away. Well, and they're Irish gangsters. It seems like it was uh, somewhat inspired by the scene. They, they are there. Uh, gotcha. So it's a gangster movie. Yeah, like bank robber movie, yeah. But you're going like, have you ever been to Frankfurt? They have a flower shop. <laughs> awesome. I was just reminded of... Um, I'm with you. There's a, there's a connection. I just didn't see it. In that flower uh, shop, Ben Affleck drops one of my favorite gangster movie lines. He, he tells that old guy, he says, Who do you think you are? The only guy in Charleston with a gun? <laughs> Great movie. I wrote it down. I'll try to check it out. So, okay, some of these names, Bill. Uh, Louis Altieri. I would go ahead and say Altieri. Altieri yeah. is what it sounds like. And it's Louis, not Louis. Right? Yes. What is wrong with you? What says Louis on my thing? It, is. it does say Lois. It's yeah, Lois. Yeah, get off my hat. Well, sorry, I had to fatten up your three-page script. That he was proud of. Sorry if the typing got away I from I thought me. it was good. It was good. It was just very short. I'll, I'll try not to. I'll try to watch my mouth, but if, if I swear, that's all right. Hey. Yeah. Wow, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we always go into this, though. I beep out the F-bombs, yeah, yeah, and, right. and they don't know why I do it. And I'm like, because it's a family show. You know, you kind of... <laughs> Yeah, it's a family show about murder and mayhem. Yeah, no, I'll leave the most awful things in, but I beep out the other thing. Yeah, it's And when you get into guys like Stax and Ori, it's not easy to do. No, it's not. Did you hear Ori when he was on Gunner's radio show? No. Mm -mm. This guy is dropping F-bombs like every other word. We're on the radio, right? We're like, Ori, it's radio, man. He goes, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Anyway, this <laughs> guy. And then the producer's like, hey, man, that's like three now, Ori. He goes, I, don't, I didn't even realize I even talked like that. I guess it's your favorite <laughs> word. I didn't even know. And he's like, two minutes later, F-bomb, you know? And I'm like, we're going to need a GoFundMe page. <laughs> it's a the FCC violations, this guy. That <laughs> is a good word. Partners in crime, I'm Bill Crooks. Thanks for having us back. I'm even less to worry about than I was six months ago. How long has it been since our last show? Man, I know for a fact we haven't done one this calendar year. We have not. 
that it's doesn't seem possible. We did one middle of December. With uh, Oldfield. Yeah. Black Hand. To my right, podcaster extraordinaire, Zach the Zip Griffith. Hey. And to his right, we have Amory Giuliano. Reed, how you doing? I'm doing great. Me and Reed camped not that long ago. Yes. It, and yeah. you remember, I came up with this thing. I go, hey, when I introduce you, I'm going to say this. It's going to be great. I have no idea what that was. I don't remember you saying that. Um, yeah, you told me <laughs> you, you better not do it. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I don't even remember that. Hey, it's funny. Oh, well, I forget anyway. <laughs> okay. And special guest, Rock from Say Hello to the Bad Guys. Hey, how's it going, guys? It's, uh, it's great to be here. I appreciate you guys having me on. So we're going to do Johnny Torrio tonight. We never do Chicago stuff. Why? Because I don't really know a lot about Chicago. Luck and the Bad Guys, they've done Al Capone. They've done Colissimo. Who else have you done? Uh, we did Jack McGurn. We covered Tony Accardo. We covered the Everlay sisters, which aren't actually outfit. They were ladies, but they started in the Levy area, which is the same area Big Jim started off at. So it's still kind of Chicago related. So we've covered all different aspects of that area of Chicago, except Johnny Antorio. So we're going to fill in the blanks tonight. Hey, guys, I forgot... <laughs> On our tech board, we've got Joshua the intern. Yeah, forgot about me for what, the fifth episode in a row? He's on. All right, here we go, Johnny Torrio. Let's get started. Johnny the Fox Torrio is born Giovanni Donato Torrio on January 20th, 1882 in Monte Peloso, Basilicata, Italy to parents Tommaso Torrio and Maria Carluccio. Tragedy strikes the Torrio family early on in young Giovanni's life when his father dies in a work-related railway accident when he is only two years old. Shortly after his father's untimely death, Torrio and his widowed mother relocate from Italy to the United States, landing on James Street in Manhattan's Lower East Side in December of 1884. In the Big Apple, Giovanni's name becomes the Americanized Johnny, and Maria finds love again, or something close enough to it, and remarries Salvatore Caputo, the marriage provides the young Torrio with a modicum of stability, as well as three half-siblings, Nicholas, Isabella, and Grace. Having covered so many gangsters, that's a real cocktail for a future gangster. You got financially impoverished, yeah. you got either abusive father or no father, and then they move into the Lower East Side, which at that time, you had all these immigrants thinking they were going to come to America and chase the American dreams. And they were all ending in the Lower East Side, which is like ground zero for all the terrible gangster shit that started in America at the time. Right, great. They've got the door wide open. Every time we do a show, the first couple of paragraphs and just substitute names. Yeah. Like nearly all Italian immigrant families, the Torios need every financial benefit they can muster. And so young Johnny is inducted into the workforce at an early age. He initially finds work operating as a porter in his stepfather's grocery store which was a front for a bootlegging operation. Yeah, and I want to throw in, when we think of bootlegging, we think of prohibition, but it actually started before, and it was a means of creating alcohol to avoid high taxation. And you could sell your booze a lot cheaper, so it was still a thing even decades before prohibition, which, of course, prohibition will expedite it and streamline it. It's an early introduction to the criminal life, and as he grows older, he finds himself a bouncer in the local Manhattan dives. It's rough work for a boy in his teenage years, but provides the requisite toughness required to mature into a life of crime. It isn't long before Torrio and another James Street local, Robert Vanella, join a street gang together, with Johnny eventually ascending to its leadership. 
Through his multiple jobs and schemes with the gang, Torrio saves enough money to purchase and open a pool hall for the organization. Impressive on its own, but of course it serves as a front for the gang's numerous illegal ventures. This guy's probably not even 20 and he bought a pool hall. Well, and I think it definitely speaks to early evidence of the career that he'll have that at an age where most of the other gangsters, especially the gangsters his age, were purely street level guys, mug in, uh, armed robbery, strong arm robbery. He's already investing in businesses and using them as front businesses. And I think that just goes to show you that there was always uh, extra gear there that a lot of these guys didn't have. Right, which makes you think there's a lot of mentorship going on, though. You don't come up with this on your own, generally. So we've already seen he already had a stepfather who's kind of had a business with a little bootleg operation in the back. And I feel like he's one big series of effective crime leaders that create basically a super gangster over time. The pool hall front serves its purpose, and the gang's underworld activities expand. Torrio uses these opportunities to develop a business acumen that catches the eye of Paolo Vaccarelli, also known as Paul Kelly. This is around 1904. Kelly is the leader of the infamous Five Points Gang, an organization that holds incalculable political influence in New York. If anyone listening has seen the movie Gangs of New York, yes. The Five Points Gang is like the main antagonist yes. of the movie, yeah. Right, like the, the Dead yeah. Rabbit Society or whatever. Daniel Day-Lewis, great movie. But yeah, and we'll get into Five yeah. Points a little bit here. And uh, Paul Kelly was definitely a, one of the gangsters that kind of bridged the gap between the Five Points Gangs of New York style of criminality to the more organized crime that we know now. But and he was actually a Bantam League boxer and boxing guys got more butts in the seats if they had an Irish name. So that's why he kind of jumped over to the Paul Kelly name. It drew more people in on the fight ticket. See, but there's another interesting tie in. He's like the third one that we've done that had a boxing. Well, yeah, uh, Nikki Scarfo did. uh, Obviously, the chin did. DeMeo? Didn't DeMeo box? Yeah, I think he did. Well, and somebody that. You guys didn't cover, but along the same uh, vein, Jack McGurn from Chicago, he was Sicilian and was a boxer and changed his name for boxing purposes exactly like Paul Kelly did. Yeah, his name was Vincenzo Gibaldi, and he changed his name to Battle and Jack McGurn. By 1905, it's said that Torrio's gang becomes a quote-unquote five-point junior under the continued tutelage of Kelly. Torrio's gang begins running legitimate operations at the Brooklyn Dock in addition to their illegal schemes. Torrio's gang has a large interest in the numbers racket, but also dabbles in other endeavors like bookmaking, loan sharking, hijacking, prostitution, and drug trafficking, mostly opium and the drug trafficking. Anyway, I got some notes on the Five Points gang I want to go over. Yes. The Five Points took its name because it marked the intersection of four streets in the area of Manhattan, which come together to form like a house-shaped pentagon. Anthony, which is now worth cross now moscow and orange now baxter and then little water now it's non-existent they converged to be what's known as the five points so by the 1820s this district had been a center of settlement for poor immigrants and it was considered a slum area of rundown wood frame and brick buildings warehouses commercial enterprises dating back from the 18th century and the early 19th century it's populated by mostly poor english scots with increasing waves of German, Welsh, and Irish refugees by 1840s. 
Now, that's the textbook definition of what it is. What it really was, was just a nasty, crazy, impoverished, disease-infested, crime-ridden hellhole. And I've seen a few documentaries, just not even about gangs, just about the five points. Everything was a brothel. They're like literally every building, <laughs> not at the same time, but at one point or another, had a police record for being a brothel. It stays that way for like 70 years. And it's just as filthy and as nasty as you can imagine. I even read that Charles Dickens once came to America and that's what he wanted to see. He wanted to see if it was just as awful as he had heard. So it was, it was a <laughs> scummy place with a global reputation. A tale of two brothels, <laughs> Charles Dickens. Yeah, well, you know, when I think of a brothel, I'm thinking of that one on Beetlejuice that's real, you know, like, uh. like I'm feeling a little anxious. <laughs> what it could be is, you know, there's a tenement with three or four floors or whatever, and they've got all these tiny little rooms. So you rent a room, and then you bring a few girls in, and congratulations, you own a brothel on the fourth floor. That's all it took back then. It wasn't necessarily a elaborate setup. It wasn't a strip full of bunny ranches. It was quite the opposite. A, a scummy room here, a dirty room there. So why was disease running rampant in this area? <laughs> I couldn't tell you. It's disgusting. They're running beds in the five points. They would run a bed like three times a day. So like you had the bed in the morning, somebody else would come and sleep there on second shift and somebody else would oh. sleep there. That's how packed and nasty this is. And the landlords just kept finding more ways to, to chop it up smaller and smaller. You know, they had tiny little yards and all of a sudden he'd build a shack out back and now that's a room. So it just got really, really bad. Well, and you know, a lot of these people, when you're living in mud streets that are soaked with crap and piss and you're dirt poor and there's no way out, those syphilis don't seem so bad. Most of them were coming to America to live the American dream. They just landed right at the five points. It's sad because how many of these people wouldn't have chosen this? <laughs> we're just going to do an informal five points poll. How many would like to live like this? <laughs> Anyway. Paul Kelly had a profound influence on Johnny Torrio. Essentially, he taught him how to be a top-tier mobster, how to act like a gentleman, how to dress conservatively, and most importantly, how to think like a gangster. He essentially sharpens the line for Torrio as to what true mafia wise guys are, as opposed to just being ignorant street thugs or muscle. Okay, I also want to get in there that Torrio did run with that. They call him a cousin sometimes. He probably was more of a friend whose name was Robert Roxy Vanilla. And they do a lot of dirt together until Roxy heads out to Montana and he has a hot date with a murder conviction out there yeah. that he ultimately beats that rap. And the show's not about him, but he pops around sporadically. So I want to keep him in your head. What's in Montana? Why do you go there? Early 1900s, that's still the Wild West. You go out there and yeah. you know, try and make a claims, you know, strike a rich Oh uh, Yeah, yeah. You could still pull some black hand stuff back then. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Uh, he went there with another buddy of his, and they had some scam they were going to do, but like I said, they got into something bad. Uh, the Five Points Gang was a gang of primarily Italian youths in New York City that existed from the 1890s to the 1920s. The gang was led by Paul Kelly, and the gang fought against Monk Eastman's Jewish gang during the early 20th century. Famous members of the gang included Johnny Torrio, Al Capone, Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, Bugsy Siegel, and Frankie Yale, 
all of whom supported the New York Democratic Party's political machine, Tammany Hall. The gang was broken up in the 1920s as the Bowery was being cleaned up. Yeah, it's definitely a, a dream team type lineup. One thing I want to make sure we covered on here, because so much of Johnny Torrio's career, we, we know him as the Fox and a lot of the slick moves and the business moves and the eloquent gangster business movie makes. But this would be his, for lack of a better term, making his bones type of era. And Paul Kelly developed him into that gangster and taught him, look, you got to grease the political wheel. You got to be business savvy. You got to make smarter decisions. But in the Monk Eastman War, Johnny Torrio was like the top lieutenant. He was street level, banging out in the streets. And I think that's a part of the Johnny Torrio story we always forget because we always see the smart gangster making business decisions. But he got there by paying his dues in the Lower East Side streets in the early 1900s, which is dirty fighting. Right. And uh, Tammany Hall was a political machine, like they said. And a lot of this stuff they're learning now, too, is how to win elections. They would do it with physical force, bribes, but he's really getting an education on how to manipulate the political machine. Fair to say Tammany Hall was just a bunch of puppets running the... You make it sound fun, like the uh, Muppet Show. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Torrio often recruits neighborhood children to run errands for him. One youth that catches his eye is an up-and-coming gangster working at Paul Kelly's club, a thuggish youth named Al Capone. Capone hails from a few different gangs, including Junior 40 Thieves, the Bowery Boys, and the Brooklyn Rippers. He comes to admire Torrio's stature and demeanor, and begins looking to the mobster as a mentor. Impressed with Capone's potential and instincts, Torrio hires him as a bouncer at the Harvard Inn, a Coney Island establishment owned by Frankie Yale an associate of Torrio's. I think a lot of times that the relationship between Torrio and Al Capone in New York may have been way more tertiary because if you look at it, Johnny Torrio's 17 years older than Al Capone. So if you look at the age groups, I really feel like the relationship was a lot more Johnny Torrio had kind of taken Frankie Yale under his wing and Frankie Yale takes Al Capone under his wing. So by the third degree of separation, Al Capone's kind of there. But I, I just don't know what kind of relationship they'd really had prior to Al Capone actually coming down to Chicago once he was an adult. I feel like the relationship was more like, you know, friend of a friend type situation at that age. Yeah, their relationship was definitely not uh, a buddy gangmates. It was definitely more of a father-son or, a, you know, uncle-nephew kind of a relationship where he was definitely an elder and was taking him more under his wing. But... I just think there's a huge age gap. And when you look at the dates on it, right. uh, Torrio was probably more cool with Frankie Yale, and Frankie Yale had Al Capone under him. Yeah, it makes sense. Organized crime is more than a career path for Johnny Torrio. It seems to be coursing through his bloodlines. He is the nephew of Victoria Moresco, wife and business partner of Big Jim Colosimo, owner of more than 100 brothels in the Chicago Territory. Torrio is often referred to as Colosimo's nephew by those who know them, but the relationship is more likely one of affection and respect. Let's talk about Victoria Moresco real quick. Oh yeah, there's a lot about her. She's Yeah, she's, she's not just a wife. No. Uh, she was described as a hefty whorehouse madam, and she offers Big Jim a piece of the brothel action, and ultimately a piece of her action, and they marry. Yeah. Nice. But she was a big part of his business plan, wouldn't you say, Lot? Oh, definitely. It was uh, definitely a marriage of convenience. It was a smart business move to 
wasn't love. <laughs> For the most part, it seems like she was probably not either an attractive or kind woman. So I don't know that it would be love, but uh, Big Jim at this point in his life was a smart guy and he was making smart business moves and uh, you, you got to do what you got to do to get the business started, you know? Have you seen pictures of her? I have not. I have. She's not disgusting. I'm going to look her oh, up right now. Oh, that's a glowing endorsement. She's a handsome woman. <laughs> not, not as bad as you think, though, if, if the picture I saw was accurate. Hey, but one thing you always have to consider with old-timey pictures is there wasn't a lot of pictures. So any picture you see, that was picture day. Like, you got ready and busted out your best hat and your best outfit. You yeah, she's made up. She's got her hair curled. She's got the lips done. It's They got her best yeah. side, you know. Yeah. Yeah, back then you might only get two pictures taken in your whole life, and both of them are going to be like your glamour shots. Look, I would be a handsome guy if the only picture you ever seen of me was my senior picture and then, you know, uh, one at my wedding. <laughs> I tank both those. I have no comment on Victoria. Oh, but what they go on to say, how it said they had 100 brothels. One of the things we talked about with the low-levelness of some of these brothels, he was notorious for in the levy being a guy that was running dollar brothels and 50 cent brothels. Whereas in that same area in the levy, there was the Everlay sisters who had a legit club that was, you know, first class. They like were pioneers of the brothel industry, but Big Jim had a hundred cause he was like trying to just mass produce them. And he treated it like a restaurant business. Like you want to turn over tables as quick as possible. Right. Now these women, are they uh, voluntary prostitutes? Big gyms, typically not. Mm. That's wrong. <laughs> Very wrong, yes. It's not great. Well, and the worst part about this, you know, some of these girls were even sold off at this day and time by even family, parents, right. stuff like that would, you know, sell them off into brothels. If you're from mm. rural Illinois and times are tough and you got a pretty daughter and she's extra mouth, they would sell them off. Times haven't changed that much. Because if you study sex trafficking today, it's very similar. A lot of times, people are selling their daughter. As 1909 rolls in, Colosimo invites his nephew to Chicago in an effort to deal with black hand demands that are coming down on him. Torrio takes care of the problem and stays on with Colosimo in Chicago, running his uncle's operations and organizing the muscle that's necessary to deal with the savagery of the Chicago underworld. So they say he goes there to fight the Black Hand. The story kind of goes like this. Torrio comes to town and he gets a beat on the extortionist demands being leveled on the family. And then he sends a message to the Black Hand conspirators. He's essentially agreeing to pay them. And as the bagman or the bagmen come to collect the payment, Torrio just has them gunned down. So he just takes them head on like that. And ultimately, I think he's kind of recognized as being too dangerous or too problematic to mess with. And uh, one way or another, he does resolve the problem for his boss. To your point, take care of it real quick. I really feel it, it was like a, a major league ball player that, you know, had to do a rehab stint in AAA ball. He was from the Lower East Side. He was from the Five Points. He had been in the Monk Eastman Wars. So when Big Jim calls him about this black hand problem, he was a guy that was familiar with that kind of racket and he knew what the deal was and he was willing to put in the legwork to handle it. And I think that was what instantly got him the credibility in Chicago. 
is that he came in and he was from the real deal, New York. And then he moved in and took care of that stuff real quick and nipped it in the bud. And that put everybody in the Chicago area on notice. Yeah, you're right. Because in our other show, the Black Hand seemed invincible with their little sneaky notes and their multiple people and the way they were mailing it here, mailing it there. So for him to come in and just clean it up real fast, it's not a small feat. Well, a lot of the Black Hand, the anonymity is what made it what it was. It's a lot like internet troll, you know? As long as that anonymity was there, they were good. But as soon as face-to-face, all of a sudden, they weren't really as about that life. Right. Unless they, like, uh, stab you with blood before. Right. But even that stuff, they came after you, like, if you were hiding. You had to beat them with offense. You had to out-offense them. Yeah, fair enough. And it's 1914, so guess who's out of prison? Vanilla! Ah. And a few months later, the two are implicated in a July 1914 death of a Chicago police sergeant who ends up actually getting killed by other police fire during a vice raid. But the newspapers at the time are reporting that Vanilla is affiliated with the Black Hand. So they file all these charges against Vanilla, Corio, Colosimo, but uh, the cases are never brought to trial. And, uh, eventually, Vanilla just hightails it back to New York. Around this time, he marries a Jewish woman named Anna Theodosia Jacob. She doesn't seem to be present in the criminal side of his life. By all accounts, he loves her dearly and shields her from any knowledge and by extension culpability of any gangster business. Succeeding in his initial endeavor, the fox takes up the task of running brothels for his uncle and aunt, effectively planting roots in Chicago. Always the enterprising visionary, Torio seeks to expand the brothel business by acquiring virgins via the white slave trade. The enslaved virgin business model is far from foolproof, however, and occasionally had its hiccups. On one occasion, two women manage to escape and seek to report the illegal operation to the proper authorities. When they fortuitously stumble upon a couple of undercover agents investigating crimes of this nature, they seem close to freedom. The agents, however, turn out to be Torio's men are cleverly planted and tasked with gunning down the poor women. Over the next decade, Johnny Torrio runs his brothel from Colosimo's Cafe on South Wabash Avenue. As his business thrives, he expands with a new saloon and a gambling den. In 1919, South Wabash Avenue becomes home to a brothel named The Four Deuces. It's apparently the subject of some public scrutiny when newspapermen launch an undercover investigation to expose the goings-on at the Four Deuces. So we found an account of this investigation at myalcaponemuseum.com, and it paints an interesting picture of what you'd find if you ventured into the brothel. He did. A 1922 investigation by newspapermen who have entered the place incognito show that there are two entrances at the Four Deuces. One is through the saloon on the first floor, and the other is through a doorway leading into a corridor just south of the saloon entrance. It is here that the girls are found in various rooms. A reported 30 girls are in Torio's employ at the time. The surroundings are very crude. Although brightly lit, no furniture or wall embellishments are to be found. Crudely made benches line the walls where men wait their turn for fleshy pleasures. During the investigation, 43 young men were present, some sitting on benches and the remaining standing. Many girls were busy in the rooms, while three untaken girls were enticing the waiting men. An obese madam in a rocking chair kept telling the men to, come on boys, pick a girl. I think she was more irritated, like, come on boys, pick a girl. If there's one place you don't want to be standing room only, it's a brothel. 
<laughs> you know, I was in a. Oh, never mind. I'll tell you. Guys later. A Bill the the uh, the grassy lot that the four deuces used to be on is now a historical landmark in Chicago, registered historical landmark, and. There is a Four Deuces phone booth at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. Yeah, there yeah. sure is. There you go. Somewhere between late 1919 and 1920, Torrio invites Al Capone to join him in Chicago, beginning the story of Capone's legendary criminal career in the Windy City. He has recently been employed by Frankie Yale as a bartender at the Coney Island-based Harvard Inn. The move is mutually beneficial for Torrio and Capone. Torrio gets a bouncer for his bar and an eventual manager at the Four Deuces. Capone, for his part, finds refuge as he is reportedly on the lam for a murder rap in New York. I'm gonna guess not, reportedly. What do you know about that, Rock? Did he come there to escape murder or was he just on an errand? What you guys hit on is it was pretty close. It's mutually beneficial. But I think more than Torrio reaching out for help, I think Capone had got himself in a lot of trouble and there was definitely a couple murder beefs and they were looking to get him out of town. He was an asset, and Torrio had this big thing going on, so I, it definitely seems like Capone had started to blossom as a gangster and got himself into a bunch of trouble, and they were looking to get him out of town, and it was a win-win situation. Like, hey, we could use some muscle, and hey, that kid that I've been telling you about for the past decade, he needs somewhere to hide out. And about that time, Capone's dad also died, too, so that really solidified his move to Chicago also. 1920 also ushers in the era of prohibition. Everyone involved in organized crime is scrambling to claim their stake in the lucrative business of black market booze. Everyone, that is, except Colosimo. Johnny vehemently pushes for the gang to enter the bootlegging business, but is unable to seduce his boss with the vast profits to be made from the racket. Colosimo is more wrapped up in his personal life than his business dealings to notice the enormous cash grabs within easy reach. Smitten with a beautiful young performer, Colosimo decides to shake things up a bit in the romance department. In March of 1920, he acquires an uncontested divorce from now-aging Moresco and elopes with a woman named Dela Winter in West Baden Springs, Indiana. He celebrates his latest nuptials by purchasing a home on Chicago's south side upon his return to the city. Okay, so Dela Winter is a beautiful and talented performer, and she's somewhat worldly having toured the Orient with her mother as a young lady. When she arrives back in Chicago, she lands a gig where else? At Big Jim's nightclub. And the rest is cliche history. Uh, it kind of reminds me of that scene in Harlem Nights when that big oaf meets the black showgirl and he just casually calls his wife and he's like, hey, it's me. I ain't coming home no more. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. So also recall that Moresco is Torrio's aunt. So it's possibly not the best situation for those two. If you see the pictures of him and her together, that was definitely an older dude in love. He was taking these terrible, like goofy glamour shot pictures. He's like yes. caking with this young girl. Yeah, I think I put one up on Instagram. Yeah, he was living his best life. And uh, you will look <laughs> at these pictures and it's hard to believe that this is Big Jim, the, the gangster that tamed the Levy District. And yeah, he's just like sitting on this half a wall with his new girlfriend all super excited. Yeah, they're doing a Beauty and the Beast thing. <laughs> Torrio finds Colosimo's obsession for his new love and his old-school status quo to be more than he can stomach. He is infuriated to think of his adversaries cashing in on the booming bootlegging trade and fears the weakening of his organization. Already, gang members are asserting that Colosimo has, quote, gone soft since his marriage to Winter. He surmises that the only way to move up 
is to put his boss down. And if there was any question to if Big Jim had went soft, all you have to do is look at the pictures of him and Dale Winter. <laughs> and it is quite clear, <laughs> yes, he had 100% gone soft. On May 11, 1920, only weeks after their wedding, Big Jim Colosimo receives a call from his restaurant. There's an important shipment, and it requires his personal attention. Meanwhile, his new bride busies herself by preparing it for an expensive and fashionable dinner date along the shore of Lake Michigan. She's disappointed to receive a phone call from her husband, who is changing their plans. Angel, just got a call, he says. Gotta meet a guy at the restaurant. It's important. Colosimo is driven to his restaurant, which is closed at this time of day. He inquires to his porter as to whether he has seen a man looking for him. The porter seems to know nothing of a shipment or a man in waiting. Big Jim moves from the dining area to his office. Before long, the porter does find a man lurking in the dining hall. Assuming it's the contact Big Jim is expecting, he directs the stranger to his boss's office and reportedly leaves the room. The stranger, rather than following the porter's directions, instead conceals himself in a nearby closet. An accountant who's also on the premises reports seeing his boss exit the office around this time. Colosimo, perhaps only mildly suspicious, if at all, turns his attention to a window door that affords him a view of the street beyond the large foyer of his cafe. As he peers through the glass, a deafening shot comes out at close range directly behind him. Before he can mentally process the hot spatter of blood and lead, a 38 caliber slug that has cut through his skull tunnels into the base of his brain. Big Jim Colosimo is most likely dead before he even crashes to the floor. Uh, there's certain accounts that depict an ambush of bullets greeting him at the restaurant, but in the account published by the Mob Museum, it's a single bullet, so uh, that's good enough for me. Yeah. I've seen the picture. He's standing in front of a window, and it's one of those windows with a giant glass, and then it's kind of sectioned off into squares. Yeah. And he's laying down in a cop's meal, macking his pose next to him. But the pool of blood is immense. Like an old factory window, like that? Kind of like you'd have on your back porch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah like that. Well, you guys said a foyer? I think it's kind of like a coat room. Some of the people are from, like, warmer areas. You know, they don't know the Midwest, but you got to have, like, a little coat room foyer up in the front. And, uh... Right. Big Jim caught himself slipping. Well, he made the cardinal mistake. The gangster world is a very alpha world. So the second you say, I don't want to keep growing and expanding and I'm just content with what I got. You know, he liked his little restaurant and the business he had. And these hungry gangsters underneath you don't want to hear that. Right. Well, now you're back to Johnny Dangerously, right? I'm shutting down the gang. Yeah, well, I'm opening it back up under new management. <laughs> I love that all the gangster movies you quote are all, all comedies. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's never the Goodfellas or Casino. Parodies. It's always, you know, Johnny Dangerously or uh, Harlem Nights. Yeah, I find them ironically accurate, despite their comedic nature. I agree. It's pretty funny. Although it's believed that Johnny Torrio placed the deadly call, Frankie Yale is alleged to be the man behind the murder, having traveled from New York to Chicago. Under the orders of Torrio and Capone, he most likely carried out the heinous betrayal personally. However, he's never officially charged with the slaying. Capone is also suspected of being the killer, and even Colosimo's ex-wife is looked at as a suspect due to her unhappiness with the financial arrangements of their divorce, thus organizing the hit on her ex. Did we buy on that? I don't believe it was the wife. I don't either. I do. I don't think so either. I don't think so. Why? Why don't you believe it was the wife? I just think uh, she was financially motivated, but not as much as the other. Like The guys in his gang were being held back because of him. 
Well, and I think honestly, if you're her, you're still better off financially as Big Jim's ex-wife than dead Big Jim's ex-wife. Right. Um, there's still probably some value to that. I think it was definitely Johnny Torrio and Al Capone. I mean, Prohibition wasn't just big money. It's, you know, epic game-changing money. And uh, he was in the way of that. And Johnny Torrio, where he liked to make business decisions, we've seen a couple times when it's time to make the tough call, he'll make that call. Yeah, it's worth noting too, De La Winter is said to have essentially relinquished the money inherited by his demise. And she went on to marry at least three other times, all to reasonably successful men. She died at the age of 95, heart failure. Wow. And she left behind two children, four grandchildren, three great-great-children, and uh, a cat named Mr. Boots. Now I made that part up. <laughs> but she had a big family and uh, a lot of men in her life, and uh, she went on to live and didn't really take much advantage of his money the way I hear it. Her bad boy phase when she was young took a real negative turn. Yeah. But yeah, I guess she didn't marry him for the money, right? Well, at the time, she was young, right? She was like 18, 19 years old, so it was probably exciting and fun and, you know, he's a little dangerous or whatever. They say his Big Jim was a big, handsome dude. Or maybe she just didn't want the liability of taking that mob money. Yeah. And she was really in love. They really had a, a relationship for the ages, and Johnny Torrios took that from them. <laughs> well, as the only woman here, and an Italian woman, I can see her wanting to knock him off to let the other men in her life know, don't fuck with me, don't leave me for a younger, prettier girl. It ain't worth it. Oh, you're talking about the older woman doing it. Yeah. I thought you were saying, like, she's getting proactive, like, okay, first husband's a starter husband. I'm going to kill him to let the other three know what happened. <laughs> yes. Like, that would be... Uh, that would be really planning ahead. Women are crazy. Oh, every single one. Now I'm going to contradict myself because she is correct. You can never underestimate a scorned woman. They will have you yeah. shot in a coat room. Yeah, but if you got to look for motive, that I don't want a bootleg motive is pretty strong. Yeah. Whomever the killer, it's Johnny Torrio who organizes an extravagant funeral for the deceased underworld kingpin. It's attended by the local society's upper crust. Men like First Ward Alderman and Cook County Democratic Committee member Michael Hinkydink Kenna, the second First Ward Alderman Bathhouse John Coughlin, several other aldermen, a couple of members of Congress, a state legislator, and a few judges. In all, there's reportedly 5,000 souls in attendance. His hearse carrying him to Oakwood Cemetery in a $7,500 silver and mahogany casket. Those two aldermen, Hinky Dink McKenna and Bathhouse John, they are like the Chicago equivalent of Tammany Hall. They're almost as equally responsible for what becomes the Chicago outfit as Big Jim and John Torrio. They were the base of the political corruption that started this giant machine running. How much is 7,500 bucks today? That's 1920, so 7,500 bucks in 1922. It's about $106,000. Dude. First of all, it was the least he could do, you know, since he killed him. But it also sets the standard for the giant flower-studded extravaganzas we've come to know as mob boss funerals. I think this was one of the first ones that really kind of set the standard for what they get. With the death of Colosimo, Torrio is the heir of a prosperous criminal empire. He immediately begins to expand into the lucrative bootlegging business. Although his expansion plans are aggressive, his handling of the various gangs in the area is far more cautious. With Capone as his sidekick, Torrio tries to negotiate compromises between his gang and the others in the city. He also consolidates his group, which until then has been called the Southside Mob. It's the genesis of what will be known as the Chicago Outfit. 
with a vision for organized crime that precedes the accomplishments of Charles Luciano. He arranges to meet with all the significant bootleggers in the area, including one of the more formidable outfits to rise at this time, known as the Northside Gang. The Northside Gang is predominantly an Irish-American group, although it also welcomes Polish and other mixed ethnicities into its numbers. It's led by a man named Dean O'Banion. Okay, so O'Banion and his cronies came up and thrived during the somewhat famous newspaper wars. And these are wars between the Tribune, the American, and the Record Herald. So O'Banion and his friends are called sluggers. First for the Chicago Tribune, and later for the Tribune's rival, the Examiner. Uh, the sluggers would intimidate sellers and readers of the wrong newspaper. So you could get beat up, and this got really violent and was a big thing at the time. So the Chicago newspaper wars were lethal. There'd be gunfights in saloons on the streets. One of his lifelong friends back then became uh, Bugs Morant. The newspaper wars hardened the Northside gang, and the political contacts made by O'Banion during this period serve him well and prepare him for the bootlegging battles that the Prohibition era ushers in. The Northside gang easily commandeers the local breweries and distilleries, giving them a distinct advantage over their would-be competitors. While the Northsiders provide high-quality beers and top-shelf whiskeys, the other bootleggers are peddling rot-gut liquors and low-quality brews. Well, you remember the near beers that Dutch Schultz was schlepping back yeah, in New York? Yeah, yeah. it's like, you know, they were doing all kinds of hokey things, uh -huh. but they actually had a good distillery. What I know also, the Northside gang, they had a lot of access to Irish connections to get an Irish whiskey, and Irish whiskey was at a premium because... People were drinking the rock gut liquor, which was terrible. And yeah. I know a lot of the, the Southside gangs, they bought up breweries. So like uh, Capone was never, they never really were liquor guys. They were always beer guys. They had breweries and had beers. So like that was one of the early compromises was they were able, like, we could provide you good beer so you don't got to sell the near beer bullshit, but we want some good whiskey. Johnny Torrio and Al Capone have a healthy respect for their Northern rivals and are eager to work out a peaceful solution that will allow both sides to prosper without drawing undue law enforcement attention. In their agreement, O'Banion is able to keep control of his north side in a wealthy neighborhood on Lake Michigan known as the Gold Coast. He's also granted a share of the Lakefront Casino, first known as Hawthorne Smoke Shop, and then later as The Ship. Torrio, for his part, controls the area known as The Loop and a portion of the south side. So the important part about this is you're starting to see what we usually credit Luciano for doing. Figuring out that the gang violence is bad for business and uh, marking out territory and working together, right? So Abandon and Torrio really do try to get along in the name of prosperity. They share their political contacts with each other. They generally seem to recognize each other's right to exist, at least for a while. Uh, one significant thing that probably helps keep their interests separate is the fact that O'Banion makes zero effort to break into the prostitution business. He seems to be morally against it. So he's not an angel, but the prostitution thing, that's a no-no for him. That's one account where he's walking down the street minding his own business when a liquor truck happens by and uh, they say without provocation or forethought, he just jumps in, beats the driver mercilessly and steals the shipment with no consideration whatsoever to the consequences, you know, of who he might be stealing from. And I heard another version of the same story where he just pointed a gun at the guy and takes the truck easily, but the other story's better. Either way, he unloads the cargo to an associate and uh, the deal's done in about 20 minutes. 
Nevertheless, things seem to be chill when it comes to his relationship with Torrio and Capone for a while. Enter the Jenna brothers. These were six Sicilian brethren who had a bit more than a passing interest in the bootlegging business themselves. One of their advantages was somehow acquiring a legal license to produce industrial alcohol, which they sold and distributed illegally. Their base of operations centered in Chicago's Little Italy. So industrial alcohol is consumable. It's better known as grain alcohol like Everclear. There's an article in the MyAlCaponeMuseum.com website that describes the genus as rot gut. Uh, so essentially I've heard that their hooch is good and I've heard that it sucks. But either way, the Jenna's booze is probably affordable. Another thing that the Jenna brothers did to get a lot of that, they would pay people money to set up stills in their apartments all over. They ran like the Little Italy neighborhood of Chicago. It's called like Little Hell or something like that. And they would have people like the tenants in the each individual unit, they would rent them out and be like, well, here, you got to set up this still in your bathroom, your kitchen or whatever. And you give us this much and you just had to do it if you lived in the area. So my impression of that booze is that it wouldn't be of the highest quality, right? No, it was awesome. People were just lining up. <laughs> Stick a syringe through a cork and pour it into some near beer. And uh, mm, <laughs> it really hits the spot. Nice. As often happens with gangsters and bootleggers, the Jenna brothers sought to expand their discount liquor business. These ambitions eventually led to the surrounding territories belonging to the Northside Gang. Ever the diplomat, O'Banion sought a solution in the form of a sit-down with Johnny Torrio and Mike Merlo, leader of the Italian-American National Union, a powerful Sicilian-American organization that heavily influenced local politics. Torrio gives assurance that he will handle the encroachments, but O'Banion senses the issue is being casually dismissed. It's becoming apparent to him that Torrio and his gang are staunchly aligned with the Jennas. The tension between the two factions is made worse by an unpaid gambling debt, rumored to be in the tens of thousands, owed by Angelo Jenna, the gang's leader, to a casino jointly owned by Torrio and O'Banion. Capone reportedly suggests that the Jenna marker is forgiven, as there are larger business concerns between the factions. O'Banion disagrees, however, and takes it upon himself to remind Angelo of the outstanding debt. This is seen by Torrio to be arrogant, and the seeds of resentment are sown. O'Banion is just getting started. He begins to encroach on the territory of the Jennas and begins to hijack their shipments of whiskey. Torrio would like nothing better than to remove O'Banion from the picture, but the would-be target still retains strong relationship with Mike Merlo. It keeps him alive, for now. So this is where the legend gets murky. I've heard it two ways. First, that the Jennas had an edge on O'Banion and that they had the best deal around. Then I hear that O'Banion really had the better product and thus easily encroached into the Jenna territory. We know that he acquired that distillery in the brewery. In any event, whichever way it was, things are about to boil over. I don't think Johnny Torrio really wanted to kill O'Banion. I think that O'Banion really didn't like Torrio and El Capone because of like what you mentioned earlier. He considered them pimps and he really didn't like that. And he liked to poke them because he didn't like them, even though the business deals made sense. Right. Torrio would have liked to have made a deal work out with O'Banion. But the problem was you couldn't really cross the Jenna brothers because you needed the Sicilian Union so bad that that political influence kind of superseded this other decision. So I think he wanted O'Banion to back down. He knew that the Jennas were overstepping, but you had to have their back in order to keep that vote because that was very important. You know, El Capone's not Sicilian. 
So having this this Union right. Sicilian was important to securing the Italian vote. So at this point, anyway, he would prefer right. everything stay cool. But nobody else wants to keep it cool. Everybody wants to, you know. That's the problem mm -hmm. is they're gangsters. They, you don't <laughs> yeah. become a gangster by being the guy that keeps it cool. Exactly. O'Banion and Torrio remain partners in the Seaman Brewery, but O'Banion's law enforcement connections inform him of an impending raid on their operation. Acting quickly, Dean O'Banion approaches Johnny Torrio hat in hand, professing to want out of the brewery business and extending a generous offer to Torrio should he like to buy him out, a mere half million dollars. Blinded by the potential for unshared profits, Torrio fails to see the scam and shortly after the deal is made, Prohibition officers descend upon the operation. Chicago police raided the brewery, arresting 31 bootleggers, including Torrio, and recovered 128,500 gallons of beer. Torrio's product is seized, and he's carted off to jail for his second Prohibition offense. He knows immediately that he's been double-crossed. Torrio has lost all patience, and when the powerful and peace-loving Mike Merlo fortuitously succumbs to cancer, the road to retribution is laid wide open. So you think he wants to kill him now? <laughs> O'Banion made the biggest mistake of Torrio's life. You know, he I feel like Torrio really wanted to keep it cool, but once O'Banion did this, it was kind of like enough's enough. It was the straw that broke the horse's back. Right, but it really speaks to what you were saying about O'Banion mm -hmm. had no respect for him. He looked down on him. He thought he could do this. It's a terrible call. Ultimately a terrible call for both of them. <laughs> To inquire about flower arrangements for the deceased Mike Merlo, Torrio sends his trusted killer, Frankie Yale, along with some of his associates to Schofield's Flower Shop. It's a retail floral business owned by Dean O'Banion. The true nature of the visit is to assess the shop's layout, for they are planning a deadly return visit. The visit comes in the morning of November 10th, 1924. O'Banion is seen clipping chrysanthemums in the back room of his flower shop. Ordinarily guarded by a resident goon named Louis Altieri, today he is alone. Altieri, having had a long night, is nursing a hangover elsewhere. Through the door enters Frankie Yale, accompanied by John Scalise and Albert Anselmi. Unsuspicious, O'Banion greets the gunman at the door. He extends a handshake to his assassin, Frankie Yale. Yale returns his handshake, but not his hands, clutching them both tightly. He holds his prey while his gunman fires two bullets into O'Banion's chest, two in his face, and two in his throat. So that O'Banion hit, it's one of my all-time favorite Bob hits that people don't talk about. You know, everybody always talk about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and Paul Castellano. But O'Banion was notoriously one of the most guarded guys, and he yeah. had his guns on him when he was shot that day. And uh, Scalise and Anselmi, they're better known as the murder twins. And anytime you got Frankie Yale, who's already took out one boss, along with the murder twins, that's a hell of a hit squad to put together. It also shows the level of respect they had for O'Banion to make sure they get the job done, that not only did they send in that many people, they sent in Frankie Yale just to hold his hand to make sure he couldn't get to his gun so they could kill him. That kind of was the hit that set you know, the Chicago beer wars, you know, all the action you see in Chicago on fire. To me, one of the craziest hits in mob history that most people don't talk about. It's brilliantly set up too, because they're there under the guise of a flower arrangement for a guy that O'Banion loves and is dead. And they're like, they're paying their respects, you know, to his friend that's dead. So his guard's down. And that's why you needed Frankie Yale, because it was somebody that O'Banion would believe was, you know, paying his respects to Merlot. 
Jaime Weiss is thrust into the leadership position of the Northside Gang and is backed by Vincent Drucci and Bugs Moran as his right-hand men. Weiss is unappreciative of the advancement opportunity provided by Torrio and company. Outraged by the killing of O'Banion, he vows revenge against the assassins. And Jaime Weiss, when he took over, Jaime Weiss was definitely known as a lunatic. Like he had chronic migraines and he was always irritated. And he he wanted revenge for O'Banion. Like he was a fierce O'Banion loyalist. And he did not take that lightly. The first target on Weiss's hit list is Al Capone. In January 1925, a crew of men from the Northside gang ambushed Capone in the street. By some miracle, he walks away from the would-be assassination unscathed, but it's a wake-up call he won't soon forget. How much do you know about that hit? This is kind of what the Northside gang was notorious for. They had the cojones and they had the bullets, but they didn't have a lot of uh, strategic sense. So they pretty much just drove a caravan of cars down the street and lit the building up with Tommy guns, you know, Tommy guns and other guns. And they actually went through one time, shot him in the air and missed intentionally to try to draw out the crowd and then sent out a second wave to shoot the building up again. But even though it was a big show and there was a lot of damage done, I think one civilian had got like shot in the eye or something, but no real gangsters were killed. Uh, allegedly, Tony Accardo was like a young bodyguard at the time and threw Pone down and saved his life or like threw him down and jumped on top of him. And that's kind of how he got in his good graces. But it was just a lot of show and no go, a lot of bullets. And it was kind of the North Side gang style is to shoot up areas with no real strategic attack. Just close your eyes and spray. Mm -hmm. So some people say it was thousands of bullets. It was closer to probably they say like about 500. But yeah, they pumped about 500 shells into the Hawthorne Hotel in the middle of the day. And it's over in about what, three minutes? Mm -hmm. In two waves. And that was Chicago in the 1920s. You could just pull off something like that. The next name Weiss wishes to cross off is Johnny Torrio. Torrio will not be as fortunate as Capone. Unwisely leaving his guard down, Fox is driving his wife home from the grocery store. The couple exits their car and begins to make their way toward the entrance to their home, unaware of a gunman's quiet pursuit. After only a few steps, the air explodes with the sound of gunfire. Johnny Torrio reels from the assault. Bullets tear through his right arm, groin, neck, and chest. His wife is terror-stricken. The killer steps forward, pressing his gun against the temple of her husband to deliver the final shot, when a hollow click reminds the startled bullets have been spent. Hoping that the four shots are enough, the gunman and his driver flee the scene. Obviously, Johnny Torrio is severely injured. He requires immediate emergency surgery. Incredibly, Torrio survives the assault. His bodyguards, led by Al Capone, stand guard outside of his hospital room to ensure there will be no more attempts on his life. So the shooters in this, I believe, are assumed to be Weiss and Moran. And this is the shooting where Torrio became the victim of the war that he never really wanted. He just wanted everybody to make money and relax. But like you said earlier, they're gangsters. Now he's shot in the face in front of his wife carrying a bunch of packages. Right. Well, you know, it's kind of karma, though, because he went after Colosimo, who just wanted to hang out with the little lady. It's true. Here it comes back to roost. For the record, jams happen a lot in gang fights or in the gangster world because these guys aren't military trained. They don't keep their weapons clean. That's not their thing. They don't, you know, they don't do that. That's important to a weapons performance. You right. know? So you get a lot of jams, break a fire pin, stuff like that. Obviously, law enforcement is eager for Torrio to name his attackers. 
He elects to adhere to the rules of Omerta and claims to know of no one who would wish him harm. Similarly, Capone remains tight-lipped but confesses that even if he knew, he'd never name them for fear of retribution. Upon his recovery, Torrio finds an almost year-long jail sentence patiently awaiting him. There are rumors of him paying a warden to provide two armed guards around the clock and a bulletproof cell. I'd believe that. Yeah, because not only do they have the money, they got the political point. Yeah. Torrio hands over control of the organization to the 26-year-old Capone. Torrio leaves Capone a criminal empire that grossed nearly $70 million yearly, which roughly translates to $997.5 million today. Later that year, Torrio moves to Italy with his wife and aging mother, no longer wanting to deal directly with mafia business in Chicago. There's no indication that he involved himself in organized crime in Italy. 1928 ushers in the anti-mafia agenda of Mussolini, and he returns to America, investing in real estate and establishing a legal liquor distribution company. After attending a conference of top underworld figures in 1929, Torrio is accredited with organizing the Big Seven, a cartel of East Coast bootleggers that includes Lucky Luciano, Longies Willman, Frank Costello, Meyer Lansky, and Joe Adonis. He's also instrumental in the creation of the National Crime Syndicate. So this is stuff that we usually give credit solely to Luciano. Yeah, right. So it was interesting to find out how heavy a hand Torrio played on this. Which also speaks to the uh, influence of the Chicago outfit, you know, because all you ever hear about is the five families. I agree 100%. I also think Torrio was this guy that had credibility in both areas, though, because he always was doing some business with New York, and a lot of these guys knew him from pre-Prohibition, so there was some relationship and some name recognition. But I agree we're on the same page with that. What we credit the National Crime Syndicate, that Lucky Luciano was this young hotshot with this fresh idea. At this point, Torrio in semi-retirement was arranging a lot of sit-downs and trying to help calm things down. And just like he had tried to do with O'Bannon and the Northside Gang, you know, before the beer wars. He had been trying to organize for a long time, like what Paul Kelly had told him. So, I mean, Lucky Luciano's scheme that we credit him for is actually goes back to Paul Kelly in the 1890s where he's like, you know, we could just stop punching each other in the face and uh, be smarter about this. In the early 1930s, Torrio buys a legitimate business called the Prendergast and Davies Company LTD for $62,000. He arranges to keep his name off the legal titles for tax purposes. However, it seems that a competitor sells him out, initiating an investigation by the tax authorities. Just as trivia, about this time in 1935, a Jewish American monster named Dutch Schultz is shot and killed. On his deathbed, remember he started mumbling Torrio's name a few times? Yes. And the police were getting all excited. He's talking all that gibberish and they're trying to get anything out of him that might be helpful. So he's got tax problems and then this guy utters his name. So it makes him a little concerned, you know, like things are turning a little south. By 1936, Torrio gets the news that he'll face prosecution for income tax evasion. He has approximately 86,000 or in today's money, 1.6 million. An internal revenue agent thwarts his attempt to flee to Brazil. On April 22, 1936, he's arrested at the White Plains Post Office while attempting to receive a passport. His wife has to bail him out multiple times, 
as the charges begin to pile up. Oh, she's beginning to suspect that he's not completely legit. <laughs> I, I got a slight feeling. <laughs> well, you know, like uh, Albert Anastasia's wife apparently thought he was in the garment business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Right up to the day he shot. Well, it's all plausible deniability. If you don't say it, then it didn't happen. So. Yeah. And, and you got to hide the newspapers, you know, all around the house. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get the paper today. If Torio could have made it to Brazil, he'd have been living the life. Because for one, the American dollar spends pretty good down there. And he loved the tropical lifestyle. So before he went to Italy, he had stayed for two years in Hawaii. And he loved it so much that he stayed in like a luxury resort. Like after he got shot, when he was recovering, after he handed off the business to Capone, he stayed there like through 1926, 27. So how is he physically after he gets shot? I mean, does he come back pretty good or is he debilitated? Well, his face is gone, right? Well, his no, his face wasn't gone. He was okay. He was scarred up a little bit. Like, uh, it, it did damage to his jaw. You know, his bullets to the face mostly went straight through, so obviously it's not good. But he was not good. He was an older man anyways that had lived a, a, a rough life. I'm 44, and I feel like shit. And I've been through barely any gang fights, so I can only imagine how he's fought. <laughs> you know, how he feels. Barely, barely any. But yeah, he was worse for wear, but he wasn't, you know, a, a crippled dude. He was a regular older gangster that was just trying to relax a little bit. On March 29th, 1939, Torio is sentenced to two and a half years in prison and a fine of 86000 Upon his release in 1941, he honors a commitment made to his wife and fully retires from criminal activities, deciding to focus on his real estate business. He's said to enjoy his final days visiting Brooklyn, St. Petersburg, Florida and Cincinnati. One of those is not like the other. <laughs> On April 16, 1957, Torio is in Brooklyn sitting in a barber's chair waiting for a haircut when he suffers a fatal heart attack. He's transported to the nearby Cumberland Hospital where he dies within hours. He's quietly buried in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York City. His funeral has been described as sparsely attended even the media discovering its occurrence three weeks after the event. This concludes the legend of Johnny the Fox Torio. I think nothing says Johnny Torio's funeral better than nobody knowing until three weeks later. Like that's uh, like how he ran everything, kind of low key and under the radar. Yeah. Even his funeral. It's scary when you hear like 1957 sitting in a barber chair. Like the Anastasia, right? Exactly. Heart attack's about as good as it gets. All right, well done, guys. I appreciate it. Well, it's been a long night. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, Locke, we couldn't have done it without you. You added an element of intelligence to it that we appreciate. (laughs) Thank you, Locke. We appreciate it a lot, man. Hey, check out uh, Say Hello to the Bad Guys. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate nobody ever in my life has uh, used me and intelligence in the same sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on up. The bar is low here. Yes, it is. All right, guys. uh, We're going to say goodnight. All right, good night. Good night, everybody. Thanks for having me.
Thank you for listening to Partners in Crime. This week's episode is an adaptation of several different historical accounts. Music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. All sources and attribute links can be found in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Partners in Crime Podcast. Links are in the show notes. If you didn't like the show, keep your mouth shut. No one likes a rat. <laughs>